uh, an incredible passage. Starting at verse 20, Jesus says, as he, as he prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. What a beautiful passage. Beautiful, beautiful passage. And it's made even more beautiful and even more incredible by the context. Jesus prays these words and steps out and is betrayed by one of his closest friends. He's abandoned by the rest. He's brought before a sham trial and then taken and nailed to a cross. And this, this is what he chooses to pray for the Father, an intimate prayer of love. And we looked uh, the last couple of weeks at how as we observe this prayer of Jesus, how intimacy and obedience characterizes his prayer and how that works out for us in identity and purpose as Jesus starts to pray for us as disciples. But we come to a really exciting passage, uh, a really exciting passage today, and probably a little bit exciting because this is one of the most quoted passages during this week of the year because this week of the year is the week of prayer for Christian unity. Uh, at Mill Hill East Church, every year we have a united service with the other churches in Mill Hill. And this last Sunday, we were at our local Church of England church for a united service, which was full of faith and hope and a sense of the oneness and togetherness of being in Christ with brothers and sisters from other churches. And then got a little bit weird at the end when someone prayed for Mary, but we'll forget about that bit. We'll try and move on from that bit. Because the thing is, For us who belong in the Reformed Church, actually we read these passages and we read about unity and we probably hear loads of prayers about unity and think, well, that means we need to be gathering together with other Christians all the time and praying and worshipping. But I think that's sometimes us coming to this passage with an agenda rather than allowing what Jesus is really saying about unity to become a reality for us that shapes who we are as Christians. And if we let Jesus set the agenda, it normally goes a bit better, right? He normally has a slightly different agenda than maybe we have. Part of the reason why uh, my friendship with Rod begun is because I am also in a United Reformed Church, like this church. Uh, The URC often speak about themselves as not just a United Reformed Church, but a uniting, reforming church. And there's there's a beauty and there's a truth in that uniting and coming together with other Christians. You guys are all guys that I've got to know through these Thursday services, through coming here. And there's something, as we meet other Christians and are united with them, even when they're part of other churches, we experience something of the fullness of the kingdom of heaven, right? Of every tribe, of every tongue. 
And I think there's a profound truth that actually sometimes the churches that are really heavy on tradition and ceremony have grasped something about the holiness and preciousness of God's people gathering together in worship. And there's something about kind of more raucous, messy, um, maybe slightly disrespectful churches like my own that get something of the intimacy of Jesus as friend. And actually when we gather together with other Christians and other places, we get something of the fullness of who God is, of what the fullness of worship is. We get something of what, the, what it is to be the fullness of Jesus' body as the evangelists and the prophets and the pastors and the shepherds and the teachers gather together, as the apostles kind of gather together and we see something in each of each other of what Jesus' ministry is in the world. But I think that second part of that, the reforming, is where maybe we go a little bit wrong. Because actually, it's really important to be reforming. The people who uh, led the Reformation spoke about it being a reforming. They spoke about it in the continuous, rather than, oh, we have now answered conclusively for all of time what the church should be. We should all work worship like 16th century Germans for the rest of time or 16th century Swiss people no they didn't believe in that they believed in a church that was constantly going back to the word of God constantly back to the word of God and allowing that to be reforming us to be refining us to be changing us that to be a reforming church isn't to be reformed by the culture outside, but it's to be reformed by the living word of God speaking into our hearts and into our lives. And actually, I think a good question for us today is what is forming us as individuals? What is forming us? Because there's all sorts of pressures on us. There's the pressure of the culture. There's the pressure of the wider church, the pressure of other believers. And there are loads of positives and negatives in that pressure. But actually, when we read this prayer of Jesus, as we've been doing over the past three weeks, we read about how Jesus' identity was formed. Because we see Jesus in his most intimate place as he prays to his Father. And actually, one of the most profound truths about prayer is that as we come to God daily, as often as we can in prayer... It forms us. It shapes us. It's one of the biggest ways that God forms our character, that he disciples us, that he speaks into us as we speak to him in prayer. So what I want to do is I want to dig through this verse by verse and maybe tease out a little bit what unity for the believers looks like. Are you up for that? Okay. I got one nod, and that's enough for me because I've not prepared anything else. Verse 20 starts, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In some Bibles, uh, I think most famously the NIV, this prayer from chapter 17 is split up into three. Um, we picked it a little bit how uh, in versions like we have today, it's called the high priestly prayer. But actually, this isn't a formal high priestly prayer. This is an intimate prayer of Jesus to his father, Jesus for his disciples. But in the NIV, it splits it up in three ways. It starts off with going, Jesus prays for himself, which doesn't quite describe what comes after it. Then Jesus prays for his disciples. Then Jesus prays for those who are to come. But actually, that isn't what Jesus says here. Jesus doesn't say, I've been praying for them and now I pray for these. He says, I do not pray just for these, but I pray for all my disciples. 
So everything that came before applies to us as well. We are the ones who will see the greater things as much as Jesus' disciples are. I think that's an important thing. And actually, it's important that others believe through our word, through us being witnesses to Jesus. And you might have been here when uh, I shared a little bit about us being witnesses, not prosecutors, that we're, we share the word of what Jesus has done in our life rather than try and argue about how God is not in someone else's life. We share that, and people come to believe in Jesus. And Jesus carries on there. I think that's important because this next bit, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Something beautiful there. And we spoke a little bit about that this last time, about uh, that word perichoresis, that sense that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. And in the same way, the Spirit is in the Son, is in the Father, is in the Son, is in the Spirit. There's this sense of, of dancing, these two distinct persons of God active in each other of one not just one activity doing the same thing but of one essence of one substance yet distinct as persons and Jesus prays that same sense of unity that he has with the father for us for us that actually the unity we have as we are distinct from each other as people, but of one heart, of one purpose, of one substance, is in and of itself a part of what the gospel brings, and it speaks of the gospel to the world outside us. When we, when we are divided against each other, when preachers use pulpits to lambast each other, to criticize movements, and they think they're being good shepherds against false teachers, that disunity and aggression in the church, it doesn't speak of the goodness of God. And we look around us at a divided world, right? We look around us at a world divided by politics, a world divided by inequality, a world divided by prejudice more and more than ever, right? That's what, all that is in the news at the moment is divisions, divisions, divisions. And yet, we're called to live and serve one another. A unity, not just of services together, but a unity of heart, of being, of being a part of who God is and being a part of who each other is. A lot of Christians are hesitant to put the label Christian on themselves sometimes. Oh, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, but I'm not religious. I'm more of a follower of Jesus. Or, oh, I'm a Christian, but not in the way that you might think. We're a little bit embarrassed of each other. And there's times where that's based on past painful experience, but there's times where actually we miss out on some of the blessings of togetherness, on some of how the way that we can love and serve one another speaks to a divided world. Jesus carries on, the glory that you have given me, and remember that's the glory we looked at in verses one to five, the glory of the cross, the strange glory of the cross that makes the, the character and action of God known. I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So we find unity with each other in this glory that we receive. And if I can maybe read a little bit into that, if we're going to see the glory of God most revealed in the cross of Jesus, and then Jesus shares that glory with us in a way that brings unity and togetherness, I think that means we're supposed to see each other according to the cross. We're supposed to see each other according to grace. We're supposed to see each other post-Easter, defined by love and forgiveness. Jesus carries on, I in them and you in me, 
so that they may be perfectly, and I love that word, it's, it's the word uh, teleo or, or telos, often used to describe the age to come, the end, perfectly finished, completed, the purpose that they've been driving towards, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Come back to this idea of unity. This is a great verse for people in this week as they look at Christian unity. Yet, for the reformers who inspired people who built this church, who built my church, it, it wasn't the vision of, of united services together, of people worshipping in a certain way that inspired them. Actually, the united church came through people viewing what's often described a little bit technically as the threefold office of Jesus. That is, when we come to Jesus, he is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. That's something that, that bound underneath it a lot of the reformed churches, a lot of the free churches, Presbyterian, Congregationalists, URC, Baptist, Pentecostals after them. It's this sense that it's in Jesus that unity comes. Unity doesn't come through us obeying an earthly structure in some way, but it comes through us recognizing Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Christian unity doesn't come through us finding one song that we all like and agree with, that we can all sing at the same time, and playing down to the lowest common denominator. I get asked to lead worship at a few different places, and often when I go and I'm leading at church gatherings or ecumenical gatherings, I'm given a list of songs I can't do, words I can't say. I was once leading somewhere and someone called me up and said, oh, you have to make sure you don't uh, pick any songs that refer to God as Father, because some people struggle with talking about God as Father. You know, he is without gender and it's a bit, it's a bit insensitive for some people. Church unity doesn't come through that, friends. It doesn't come through playing to the lowest common denominator. It comes through putting Jesus in his rightful place above and beyond all. And for us as a church, to see Jesus as prophet, priest, and king is a powerful thing. For Jesus to be prophet, it means he is speaking into his church. His spirit is active and alive and guiding his church. We are obedient to him and his voice. To submit to Jesus as priest is not just a question of how you make decisions in your church, although it's spoken about in those terms, but actually is to look at the priest who just a few chapters before this showed what priesthood was all about by kneeling and washing the feet of his disciples and saying, let us serve one another. Let us strive to outdo one another in doing good. Let us try and outgive one another. Let us be hilarious in our generosity. Let us be sacrificial in the way that we, we love each other. And to have Jesus as king is to have him as the ultimate authority. It's to say, actually, maybe I will pick some songs that describe God as father because that's how Jesus referred to him, which I didn't do because I didn't want to be offensive, but I also didn't lead worship in that place again. <laughs> um, but actually, there's something in that. This is how the world will know not through a service where we play to the lowest common denominator, 
as great as those things can be to have joint services, as much as those things can be great to have joint conferences, to, to see joint outpourings of the Spirit and movements of churches associated with each other, actually it's through the Spirit of God, service and submission to Him as King. I think then the world will see that we are sent and loved by God. Through God's Spirit, being active in our life, through us being people who, who listen to where God is leading, who allow Jesus to speak prophetically into his church, through us being people who serve in the way that he did, through us being people who are submitted to his authority. Actually, I think the truest and most beautiful Christian unity comes when we put Jesus in his rightful place. That sounds very simple, but it's quite challenging, isn't it, at the same time? Father, Jesus carries on. I desire, that word thelo, will, his, his purpose, his desire, that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus' desire, his will, is for us to be intimate with him. The reason why we should pray in 2019, why we should draw near to God in intimacy and obedience in 2019, why I felt that God wanted me to share this series at the start of this year is not because we need to be better Christians and get better at praying, but because Jesus desires for us to be intimate with him. That's what Jesus longs for. And he, he models this intimacy with his father and calls us into that. Wow, what a beautiful thing. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus comes to his glory through suffering, through the cross. But there's something quite beautiful in what Jesus reveals here. The salvation of the cross is built upon the love of the Father for the Son. The engine of the Trinity of his relationship is love. The rhythm of the dance is love. And our hope that we find in salvation is that we're, we are judged according to his love and his character. A beautiful thing. Oh, righteous Father, Jesus carries on. Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Throughout this prayer, Jesus is called God Father, Holy Father, Righteous Father. Speaking of the perfection of God the Father, his righteous judgment of the world and the cross, and therefore us. And actually, this righteousness, this perfection of God. The holiness, the purity of God is revealed in the saving action and person of Jesus. Jesus came that the world might know the Father, that the world would have the Father's character revealed to them through him. His goodness would be revealed through the cross. That through Jesus' intimacy, knowing who God is and his obedience to what God is doing, we would see who God is. Those words gain a power and perspective when we realize this is the prayer before Jesus goes out to the cross. Before he goes out and suffers unimaginable pain and travesty and injustice. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Wow. Jesus, in his final words, he doesn't assure his disciples of his power. He doesn't assure his disciples of his plan. 
He doesn't say, listen, guys, I'm strong enough to overtake this. He doesn't say, listen, guys, don't worry, three days later, I'll be back. He assures them of his love. He assures them of his intimacy. I have known you guys. I know you, and I will know you. Because perfect love casts out all fear. He sees us, and he knows us. So we see these themes kind of teased out through all of this prayer. That the engine of prayer isn't asking and receiving, but it's intimacy and obedience. That for us as disciples, that means identity and purpose. Our identity and purpose are shaped by God. And in this final passage, that is all brought together in unity and love. Unity with the Father and unity with each other. And I think there's a real truth in all of this. Intimacy with the Father shapes who we are personally. And that leads us into loving unity with each other. The more secure you are in your identity, in and of yourself, the easier it is to find your place in the body of Christ and not be so wounded and hurt by one another. That's not an easy thing. That's a long journey. But it's a unity of of spirit, service and submission together as we looked at. Obedience to the Father shapes our purpose, shapes who we are and what we do, and that is all bound together in love to make God's love so revealed in the cross, present through all that we do. I think that's what Jesus teaches us about prayer, that actually the way that he prays to his Father shows, shows really fully, truly who we are and where we're called to, because it's the way that he shows fully who he is and what he was about. Should we stand and pray together? Jesus, fill us with your spirit now. If you need a touch from Jesus, if you feel distant, if you feel weak, if you feel unsure of where to go next, Why don't you just lay a hand across your heart now and just invite God's spirit to fill you. Come Holy Spirit, fill us now. Fill us now. Bring your church together in your love and power. Father God, may you set our prayer lives on fire this year. Allow us to be more intimate with you and obedient to what you are doing. Father God, in this year, may our identity and our purpose be shaped by you above all else. And Father as we go out from this place. May you continue to draw us together in unity and love. Amen.